Hey everyone, I hope you've hopped on your phones by now and downloaded your free version of Medify, our partners for season two. Medify is this really great app that promotes emotional and bodily awareness. Our conversation today is very much related to bodies and being aware of how we feel about them. I use Medify and can say that it's great and nuanced and simple at the same time. Medify, M-E-T-A-F-I, is a free download on iOS or Android. So go get it today and begin to be your best self. I've been around this block twice now. I'm looking for something. A clue. I've been looking for clues and something led me back here. Yep, so here I am. Could have been me the one that was at Ringo's place when the shit went down. Hey, I know how it is. I've been there. We've all done bad things. We've all had those guilty feelings in our heart. You want to take your brain out of your head and wash it and scrub it and make it clean? Oh, that's good. So you know me. You know my reputation. That's right. I'm Brock Landers. So I'm going to be nice. I'm going to ask you one more time. I am a star. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. I am a big, bright, shining star. In my 20s, I found a safe place to discover my own sexuality and my own body and figure things out. What does that mean? That sounds really vague. Oh, I don't know. Hold on. I'll try to narrow it down. I'm John Totten. And this is Between Us. You didn't grow up in this country. I didn't. Um, I was born here. I was born in Tucson, Arizona. And then we moved to Dallas when I was two. And then we moved to West Africa when I was five. Uh, I grew up in Ghana, West Africa, in the city of Tamale, which is in the northern region. And it's a Muslim town, like 99% Muslim. And the third largest city in the country. The country is about the size of the state of Georgia. I think this statistic is about a third of the slaves that were taken from Africa were taken from Ghana. So deep, deep colonial history. We lived there for nine years. I'm torn on how to address today's topic. In my perfect world, sexuality between consenting adults would be just a thing that happens, often with joyous results, and sometimes with difficult results. Like eating food. But it's not that way. Being sexual with another human is the most vulnerable and intimate thing that we do. And for that reason, people are prone to project all of their hopes and dreams and their dreads and fears onto their own sexuality and the sexuality of others. I struggle with the term sex positive Because my reaction is always to think that I don't want to be negative or positive with my patient's sexuality. I simply want to remain curious and interested. You'll hear me talk about curiosity in this interview ad nauseum. But I left it all in because to me it's like that Clinton slogan in the 90s. Instead of the economy, it's curiosity, stupid. A spirit of inquiry. It's really important to this work. But it's easy for me to say we should remain neutral about sexuality because I'm a person of immense privilege. I've never had the experience of fighting through shame to reclaim my right to my own desire. 
And even though I and my guest today grew up in cultures that were evangelical in their views about sexuality, i.e. the only right sexual behavior is that which exists between one man and one woman in the context of marriage, we somehow powered through. In reality, it's important for us to declare that those we work with have desires that are natural and good. And still, in 2017, in the psychotherapeutic community, we fail at this, as we will hear about at one point in our episode today in a specific case. Liana Ramsey did grow up in a conservative culture. In fact, she grew up in Africa, the daughter of missionaries. But for some reason, as you will hear, her personality and all of its radicalness and radiance was far more powerful than any shame-fueled dogma. We sat in my kitchen and talked about everything from ethical porn to the misappropriation of feminism in order to vilify sex workers. So the term is a third culture person, a person who grows up of a different culture than the culture that is around them and also a different culture than their parents. So you're thinking like a second generation immigrant where your parents don't match their surrounding culture and neither of those cultures match you. All of my third cultural peers, most of them don't live in America. One of the things I think about my development is I was moving back and forth at a really young age at five and eight and nine between this like white, middle-class, evangelical kind of fundamentalism, Christianity. My parents were like part of the post-Jesus people movement, like we're hippies and then hippiedom failed. Right. And then also moving back and forth between this Muslim, um, West African town. I think it's so fundamental to my development that really early on I felt like the cultural rules about women's bodies were just totally arbitrary. They didn't match, and in both places they just seemed made up. There was such a contrast that you knew there was some construction going on and that it wasn't objective truth that there's one way to do sexuality or having a body or any of those things. Yeah, I think most women, their experience of how society polices their bodies is so internalized and monolithic that it becomes this internalized shame that even if you can like break it, it still is a, a singular truth inside me. So in my neighborhood of Sakasaka and Tamale, all of the grandmas walked around, wouldn't show their ankles, wouldn't show their knees in these floor length, large skirts and hair covered. But like the grandmas would be like topless, like boobs weren't sexual and they would just walk around like that. And that was perfectly cultural appropriate. And then we would come back here and it was like, well, you could show ankles in Tucson, Arizona or Southern California, wherever we were. And you could show knees and you could wear heels and but you, your clavicle had to be all covered. Mm-hmm. I just stopped believing that any of that was real. My mom says that it that was how she became a not fundamentalist. I will ask her, like, how did... So you were this, like, fundamentalist when I was a little kid. Like, what happened to that? Mm-hmm. And she would say, like, oh, we moved to Ghana. And you, like, can't be around people who do everything different than you and are still super good people with amazing souls and not just start to know that all of your arbitrary rules are just pretend.
At the most basic level, I think sex positivity is about thinking that sex and sexuality and bodies are good in all the forms they come in. The experience of having a body and having a sexuality should be unique and should be playful and experimental and specific specific to each of us. I believe that there isn't a right way to do it and there isn't a wrong way to do it. And I certainly believe that sex and sexuality and bodies can cause a lot of pain in people's lives and can cause a lot of pleasure. That the work of therapy is about examining and contrasting and providing space for the client to have some choice over how they want to continue in those arenas. Mm. And I think that that therapists who have a preconceived notion about how sexuality or bodies should be have a tendency to limit their clients' choices rather than expand their clients' choices. Tell me who it is that you aspire to work with. Yeah, I definitely identify as a generalist I am really interested in continuing to work with people around their sexuality in a non-shaming way. I notice now that my clients come to me and they disclose their drug use in session one, and they disclose childhood trauma in session two, and then they wait to disclose that they're poly or non-monogamous or kinky or whatever until session three or four or five, like it's this. They feel more comfortable being vulnerable around trauma, um, around their addictions, than they do around how they practice sexuality. Right, because therapists are famous for being accepting of trauma. I don't specialize in substance use, but lots of therapists do. So I think therapy has gotten a really good reputation for working well with addictions and being not shamey about that. Um, but sexuality is still this thing where you often can't tell from a therapist's website if they believe you should be married or they believe you should be living your best life, whatever that looks like. Where they are on this spectrum of acceptance in regard to sexual behavior and how much they're interested in the client's own experience of living out their sexuality, like the client's experience of what's working or not working. Mm-hmm. But I'm always noticing, oh, like this is the scarier thing to say. Hmm. And and I think like their defense is right on the money because how what percentage of therapists could they inch it out in session five? Like, oh, by the way, me and my boyfriend also spank our neighbor on Tuesdays, and I'd like to talk about that. And like the therapist have a negative reaction. Man, you don't. Know- this is my own counter-transference dominance, but there are some days where that kind of information could really keep me awake. <laughs> um, like, bring it. It is one of the things that makes our work interesting. Right. If, you're, if we're curious about it and not shutting it down. Yes. Yes. And I don't have a problem with therapists saying they specialize in sexual disorders or sexual impulsivity or sexual harm. Even like infidelity, right, has this word, unlike poly, right? It has this word of like, oh, you you were non-monogamous and it was problematic in your life or in your relationships. But instead, what I see therapists saying they specialize in is, oh, like I specialize in pornography. This assumption that pornography is inherently problematic, 
So I, I see this language being used that doesn't help clients discern who would be a good fit for them. Let's leave it vague and get them in the door, and then we can shape them in our image. Yeah, this like sneaky thing, right? Like they'll come in and then we'll make it clear that the root of their problems is their sluttiness. So what Liana is saying here is right on. We're required to let potential patients know when we have particular views they might need to consider on these topics. It's a regular occurrence for me to talk to potential patients who are men who say they struggle with pornography addiction. In our first conversation, I have to let them know that I don't believe that pornography is an addiction in the clinical sense. Sure, it can become compulsive and can cause problems in anyone's life, but I let them know that unlike addictions to alcohol or drugs, pornography use decreases brain activity. This study was published by researchers at UCLA in the Journal of Biological Psychology in July of 2015. Because the brain is complex, there are some things in there that look like addiction when using pornography. But researchers everywhere stop short of saying that pornography itself is addictive. This is similar in sex addiction. What happens in the brain of the so-called sex addict is different than what is happening in the brain of the alcoholic or the tobacco user. Some may debate it, but it is qualitatively different. And I think most of us in this profession have this intuition as well. Sex is inherently relational. We come out of the womb wanting our mother's breasts. It's a factory setting for us to have sexual desire. And we develop the habits that satisfy that desire over time. Compulsions? Yes. Unwanted habits? Sure. But I don't call it addiction. That's why I let those potential patients know when they're sitting on my couch that I won't disorder their desire. It's my premise not to unnecessarily pathologize. I think people are always looking for a therapist that shares their language. Um, The term in linguistics is your heart language. So most people in Ghana speak four or five languages, but they would tell you that they understand their heart language or their first language much different than they understand the following languages that they learned, even if they are fluent in them. Hmm. Um, So my therapist is third culture and is married to an American and is an artist. And those things were important to me when I was looking for a therapist, that I not have to translate those parts of myself. People are trying to figure out, how can I find a therapist that I don't have to explain everything to, that they have some understanding of where I come from, Like, I understand queer language, but that doesn't mean I'm going to make you more or less queer when you come into my office. I don't have an agenda about it. I mean, that makes sense that it's hard to communicate that. This is a safe place for someone who identifies this way, but it's not my agenda. But I don't—maybe I'm just bitter, but— it, but there is an agenda a lot of times. Yes, that's what I think. I think I wouldn't find Christian counseling or or pornography counseling or or heterosexual counseling problematic if there was a clarity at the beginning that I have I have that worldview as a therapist and I share that language and also I have that agenda. I use the phrase in my, all of my marketing literature that I practice non-judgmental therapy and I don't love that phrase, but I'm trying to find a phrase where I say like you are the expert on you and I'm here to help with what you think is a concern for you. 
I was a therapist in schools for two years. And I really loved it because of how much it made therapy ordinary, that I was a mental health practitioner that could be at recess and on the playground and in IEP meetings and in all of these ordinary spaces. So when I was a therapist in schools, I had a lot of parents coming in or some parents coming in saying, well, you know, my five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old seems to be having, parents would not use the word trans but they would say some, like, gender something, they would say. And all they were looking for was teachers and practitioners in the school, everyone right from a receptionist to a bus driver to a teacher, that wouldn't have a horrific reaction when their little boy showed up in a dress. You didn't have to be pro. Do you know what I, you did You weren't, like, they, they didn't need you to have this, like, they didn't need you to understand it. They didn't need you to have a fabulous agenda. They themselves didn't understand it, maybe. They themselves didn't have an agenda about it. It was this unfolding thing. But they were really concerned that adults would have an immediate negative reaction. And that's how I think about these other issues in therapy. I think like, oh, my clients are really concerned that they're going to come in and like let a little tiny bit of kink out. And the therapist is going to go, <gasps> And they have no way to know whether that will happen to them or not. And and the sad part is that that fear is founded. Yes. It's not an unfounded fear. No. It's not crazy to encounter therapists who think that kink equals pathology. Okay, so I have to say, Liana's about to tell a story from Twitter. It might be our first ever example of a Twitter thread on the show. We're a little blurry on the details, but hang in there because I actually went and talked to the person on the phone afterwards. But here's our take on a frustrating story. Yeah. In fact, I sent you this week this lovely stranger on the internet. They go on Twitter by Mr. Sex Smith, who was dumped by this therapist this week because they're a they're a top in their consensual loving, beautiful kink relationship. Sinclair Sexsmith was asking on the internet, uh, where is a resource list for people who are kink or poly or queer or sex work and are looking for a therapist that fits that? I I don't know of any list like that. They were laying out how difficult it was with their insurance to already find a practitioner that practiced close to them and accepted their insurance and had the right hours and that they had worked so hard to find this person and done some number of hours together. And then the person's... uh, Unfortunately, this is a really sad case because that therapist uh, reportedly stated that the reason they would not work with this client was because they were a feminist therapist and inherently top-bottom kink relationships are anti-feminist, which is like a horrific reading of feminism, A. But B, this person was saying, now I have to start that process all over again if a therapist only figures out how they feel about my kink 10 sessions in. Like, how many times am I going to do this before I find somebody who can help me with my very real, you know, anxiety problem or whatever is going on? So this person on the internet, they were dumped by their therapist because they were... They were top. And how did that not fit into the therapist's view of feminism? 
uh, reportedly the therapist said the power dynamic in a kink top and bottom relationship is anti-feminism okay. uh, and inherently exploitive or coercive, which uh, Sinclair Sexsmith was very clear that like kink and power relationships can be just as abusive as any other relationship. I would never claim that pornography can't be abused or kink can't be abused or or that these thing poly relationships never cause pain to people. Like that would be silly. Sex work is always great. Like all of those ideas are crazy. But to imagine that it cannot be a myriad of things. Right. And as practitioners that we're responsible to be curious about this life in its specificity. Yeah, I think that's the the big problem for me is that the lack of curiosity. And it's it's, it's a stance, it's a posture change, right? It's the difference between someone saying tell me more and the and someone saying let me tell you about that. So this person on the internet was dumped by their therapist because they're kink relationship that included a power dynamic did not fit into the therapist's view of feminism. So I found Sinclair Sexsmith and I asked them for an interview. They said yes and we talked on the phone. Sinclair is a writer and speaker on issues of sexuality and gender based in the Bay Area. Here's the real story. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. And then one more thing. Hi. So I'm very interested in this particular story. Um, Tell me what happened. It sounds like you were rejected by a therapist for a strange reason. Basically, um, I mean, I I have a long history of therapy. I've been um, working with uh, depression and mood disorder since my teens. And um, I've seen a variety of therapists. And lately I've been trying to find somebody new. So I've got a, you know, a dozen call, calls into different people. And so one of them called me back and I tend to have some screening questions because I have had enough first visits with therapists to know that um, sometimes you can actually just ask a few questions and decide, and it's clear that you shouldn't really work together. So one of those is that I am actively in a, a relationship with power dynamics within the kind of BDSM world where there's BS, there's dominance and submission. And my partner and I, you know, it's a consensual agreement that we come to very well-informed about. Um, We're very active in those communities and it's very fulfilling for both of us. And that is not something that is not working in our relationship. And it's something that often has a lot of friction or has a lot of, challenges and um, so I'm particularly looking for someone to work with me around it. Uh, so that's basically what I explained to this person who called me back and said, you know, what did you want to talk about? How can I, you know, answer your questions? Um, so I explained we were in this power dynamic relationship and they said, um, you know, I don't think we would be a good match to work together because I come from a more feminist perspective. And I was a little shocked. And then, you know, I I know I said something back to her, like, it's not, you know, I also have a feminist perspective on this, um, but I'm sure I also was not as articulate as I would love to be. So it was fairly easy for me to knock, to like let it roll off me. I've heard that plenty of times. I don't 
internalize it anymore, although I think that that is something that is a very common conversation that people have um, and fear that people have around coming out kinky to their therapist. And, you know, but the next day it was still kind of bugging me, so I went to Twitter and talked about it. Uh, I didn't just say, you know, this is what happened. I also said, um, here's why it's wrong and, you know, went kind of into my... (laughs) My reasonings about like this is messed up. People should know that this is not what feminism means. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure what she meant was I come from a more egalitarian perspective of you know that people are inherently equal and shouldn't you know have power over each other. But that is not the same thing as feminism, in my opinion, and in many people's opinions. So for our listeners who may not follow you on Twitter, and if they're on Twitter, they should. What is wrong with that? A lot of this all depends on your definition of feminism, right? Like there, Mm -hmm. um, and there's no one definition that everybody agrees in or goes by at this point. I believe that feminism is about consent and agency and kind of self-empowerment and information. I think it's really dangerous to put authority exchange relationships as the opposite of feminism. I think feminism can encompass all sorts of things and people can be dismantling power structures while at the same time playing within them for empowering reasons. Uh, Kink and power exchange are consensual and loving acts between people that are not, you know, it's not coercive. It's not about, it's not about abuse. It's not about violence. It's not about manipulation. Um, It's about being our, being the best selves that we can be. And if you think that, think otherwise is misinformation. And, you know, ultimately for me, it felt a lot like I was grateful in some way, right, that she said, I don't think we should work together because she's right. We shouldn't work together. And I'd rather know that then than know it 10 sessions in, right? And I don't, I think the judgment involved in that statement was the problem. If she doesn't know about kink or about power dynamics, that's fine. She doesn't, you know, if she says, you know, I'm just not educated about that and I don't know if I can help you, that's, that would have been fine. But the, to say, like, that's not feminist, which is definitely what she implied, is insulting. And it has to do with a judgment on what that practice is and what it's about. Have you found someone to work with since this happened? Yes, I'm only a couple of sessions in, but this person is very open-minded and interested. I'm not sure what his experience exactly is, but he's very open and, you know, has said he definitely doesn't pathologize kink and is using some kind of alternative methods as well that I feel curious about. What do you wish that a therapist would know to say or ask when someone like you walks into their office and tells them about similar practices? I mean, depending on their experience, I think I should say, I don't know much about that, but I'm willing to learn with you, or um, I know a little bit about that, and I'm curious what it means to you, or what that, you know, could, what is interesting to you about that. You know, I, I haven't had a lot of therapists willing to dive deep into kind of the theory and the meaning and all that, and, and I do right now have a couple therapists who have been phenomenal with this. We've loaned her a couple of books about power dynamics and she has come back with them like 
sticky notes in them and gone, mm, can I quote you something that he says on page 300, you know? And it's mm-hmm. been really fun to collaborate that deeply because she's so interested in, in the dynamic. So that's been great. But I, I think, you know, one of the things that I might in general recommend are things like basic books about the BDSM world. There's a book called The S&M Feminist, and I keep kind of thinking in the back of my mind, maybe I should just drop it off at that person's office. (laughs) (laughs) Please read, you know. I think that the kindness and the curiosity is key. Hmm. Sinclair, thanks so much for being willing to talk to me. My pleasure. Something that I'm interested in, because again... Uh, I've said it on the podcast before. I, I don't need to be like the definitive voice about fem- feminism for anyone. But it does seem strange when people appropriate feminism to oh. to tell people, sometimes women, like let's say sex workers or right. actress, uh, adult actresses, right. what is good for them. Can you tell me how that's how you see that is a misappropriation? Oh my gosh, this yes, such a great question. I do think a lot of my identity is formed by how many times I was called slutty as a teenager, how many times I was sent home from public school for dress code violations, how many times I was told you're using yourself wrongly if we could say it that way. And I think that really informs me because I... I think that our culture, or maybe patriarchal cultures around the world, are inundated with both men and women constantly giving that message to women. To me, feminism is about freedom of choice. And is about people getting to live how they want to live and like what they like. Um, and I think I think about sexuality that way and pornography and sex work. Feel feel free to be you and feel free to try. And specifically when I think about really famous people that have disclosed to the public that they were sex workers, whether it be Maya Angelou or Malcolm X or Rupert Everett or Janet Mock, who's so lovely. Janet Mock has that quote where she says, my sex work, it wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good. Oh, what a nuanced, lovely view of your life. Of course it wasn't all bad and it wasn't all good. And that's really what I desire for my clients to be able to bring to me around their bodies and their gender and their sexuality is their complicated experience of how it has been and how it is now so that they can have more options when they leave my office. It's something that's clear when talking to you about this is that all of the shame that was thrown at you as a kid or a 20-something and all the calling you too slutty and all that stuff, it seems that you're rather resilient in the face of all of that. What's the difference between you and how that was internalized versus someone who has had a hard life of expressing themselves sexually or without the shame? I don't know. I wish I knew because I I think I could give it away easier if I knew. I think for some reason I just got louder. I just got sluttier. 
I don't know. I don't know why it did that to me instead of what it does to lots of people, which is make them shut down, hmm. right? Make them get quieter. Is that constitutional for you? Is there there's something in you that says fuck you? I'm going to do what I want. Yeah, I think it is. My parents were not a fan of my sexuality uh, in my teens. I think they found a condom on me when I was 15. I was sent straight to therapy, like to a Christian therapist to fix it. Do you remember what he said? Yeah, he felt like I was going going for a reaction is why I was so brash and loud and that people should stop reacting to me, which is like a horrible prescription for any, any child who... I mean, needs to have a responsive environment around them. So he erroneously framed your very expressive personality that way. What about the sexuality? I don't know if I've ever met a human whose sexuality was exclusively performative. We've both worked with sex worker clients before. Yeah. One of the things that I find in myself when I'm working with a sex worker as a client, where they are the client, (laughs) is the reaction to the work on the basis of safety. Mm. Thinking thoughts like, I have no judgment against this work, but I would prefer this person not to be in such a dangerous profession. Right. What, I mean, what is your response to that when I, when I, as a man working with, I guess it doesn't have to be a female client, but that reaction that I have to the safety of the profession. Yeah. Well, I think because you used the word safety instead of the word emotional safety, <laughs> um, I had a positive reaction to it. I do think that, that sex work is dangerous work, right? That's where I think like workers' rights come in for me mm. because I think that therapy is rarefied and so we're usually treating people who live in safe working conditions. In Seattle, I'm much more likely to have a bunch of tech workers be my client than a bunch of coal miners. But that doesn't mean that coal miners have less mentally ill problems. It means mental health is less accessible to them because of the way it's set up in America. And the sense of it being for upper class people, that it's a snooty thing, which it often can be. And so maybe a way for me to think about it is not that I wish they were in a different profession, but I wish that this profession was safe for them. That's what I think. The website titsandsass.com is uh, written entirely by sex workers and contains like regular submissions and it's topical and I love it and y'all should go there. And they talk a lot about like McDonald's being a super shitty job that they asked to be treated the same way you would treat a fry cook or somebody who is in a really demeaning, really low paying, really unhappy job. Like, yeah, workers' rights are a thing. It's impossible to have a trans client and not think I'm concerned about your safety because trans people's rates of victimhood are through the roof all the time. And so, of course, I'm going to be more concerned for my trans client's physical safety outside of my office than I am for my, like, cute, straight, white, like, middle-class families that I see. Because mm-hmm. the statistics just mean that they're so much more at risk. But that doesn't mean that I'm inherently saying the solution is for them to not be trans or to not be out or to sure not live their life. I'm wishing that the world were safer for them. And I may be asking, like, how do you manage that anxiety and that the fact that you're persecuted in our culture all the time, how is that affecting your mental health? Mm-hmm. Which I think is the is the real issue. 
What do you want someone to know when they come into your office and let's say they're a sex worker or they believe they have a pornography addiction and they're vulnerable to the kind of culture of shame? I think there is this line I'm always walking, especially at the beginning of mm-hmm. a work with a client where they're like, they're testingly disclosing these tiny bits about themselves to see how I'll react. Where on one hand, I am saying, Yes, I believe you. You have been not believed about this thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And and you have come here and you are paying me money and you are sitting on my couch. Um, and maybe it is awkward for you or scary or weird. And I believe you. And also there is this other part of me that is like, I don't really think you have a porn addiction because you only look at it once a week. And you're reporting to me that like, Really, the issue is like it's really complicated to communicate about it to your spouse, or you like you don't know how to share it with your spouse, mm-hmm. or you are single and searching, having trouble dating and trying to figure out what might must be wrong with you, why it is hard mm-hmm. to date, right? I have this experience of like, oh, I think it might also be about other things. So I think I'm always trying to like do a little bit of both. Like, yes, I believe you. And also, like, I mean, I don't know. Let's explore that more. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like this up in the airness. Like, can we leave it suspended while we work with it for the uh, next couple of months? And what you're saying is we don't need to put anything aside right off the bat. We can just let something breathe for a minute. Right. I always feel this in my own, when I am the client too, therapy is expensive mm-hmm. and it's time consuming and it's intense, an intense experience. And so I think how could any client not feel like, let's get her done. <laughs> <laughs> let's just like sort this stuff out and get moving. Um, and so the therapist is trying to say, I actually, I actually think we can like slow down and examine this. And I swear I'm not a charlatan here to just take your money and trap you forever examining things. And the client is saying like, let's get her moving. I'm really, I'm right. My symptoms are really high and it's really not working and I need it right now. It just comes that for me, it just comes back to curiosity. Like how can we do this work if we're not curious? And how can we be curious if we're ready to tell someone the should of things? Yeah, the person on Twitter, going back to them, who was dumped by their therapist, they would just have preferred the therapist to say, I don't know a lot about kink. Tell me how it's showing up for you. Like that it's okay for therapists to be ignorant. But it's rather that when our ignorance causes us to claim a kind of expertise that's harmful, that's why I really think like, woof. Right. We're like messing with people's like really intimate part of their lives. What I know of the sphere of sex therapists does this really well. If you have someone who has a specific sex therapy degree and is an expert sex therapist, they seem to be to have a strong foundation of live your best life and let's experiment and try different things and see what it's like for you and like how can you be more in your body? How can you be more yourself? Where I think psychoanalytic and mental health therapy for some reason has this assumption that if you're coming in and talking about your sexuality that that must mean that there's disorganized behavior somehow in it so let's look for the problem rather than this like strength-based approach of like well what is working how do you feel about the fact that this is a public forum and in regards to disclosure 
I love that question. I think it's especially important as a woman mental health practitioner. My experience as a woman in the world is that all of my movements are judged, Mm. that it is impossible to make such neutral movements that the world would have only a positive reaction to my ways of being. That causes me to continue to move in the world how I wish to. I have to do so with the resilience that I don't get my my sense of worth or my sense of identity from people's reaction. I have to get it from myself and from the people who um, know me and are around me. I think I practice a more open form of therapy than other therapists. I don't seek to be invisible online or invisible in the room. I think from day one in this field, I felt like I couldn't with my personality. My facial expressions are really big (laughs) and my clothes are sometimes loud and I like shout when I'm happy and I couldn't do this work if that meant that I had to stop all of those things about me Mm -hmm. and make myself subdued and neutral in a way that I think some people seek to do this work and maybe is helpful for some people to have a really neutral therapist. I don't know. For me, because I am a responsible therapist and a responsible grown-up, I thought about what I was comfortable disclosing before I came here. I talked to my partner about what I could disclose of his sexuality and our sexuality. And that feels like a just how it's essential to be when I know that people will hear this and that this self will be a self that exists in the world as I in person continue to change, right? That's what the internet brings us, that we're like captured. John and I are close in age. (laughs) Um, And so, right, we went through high school and college with no Facebook and Mm -hmm. no Instagram. And so there aren't records of those versions of ourselves. But now in our 30s, there will be this record of our current selves all the way for the rest of our lives, probably, Mm -hmm. um, unless the zombie apocalypse happens. I feel integrated enough to cope with that. And I also feel like I hope to continue to work with clients who are curious about myself and also, you know, can have questions or push back about it. What am I going to do? I'm going to like erase myself in order to do this work. That's awful. I think just being realistic is a good way to talk about sex positivity too, because it's the idea that people are going to do what they want to do and they're going to desire what they desire. And there's not a lot of sense in telling them what they should desire because that's not the way we work no thanks liana thanks john our sincere thanks to liana ramsey and a special thanks to sinclair sexsmith for your willingness to talk and be candid with us may we encounter those who seem other to us with kindness and openness We'd also like to thank our partners for Season 2, Medify, a free download on iOS and Android. Download it today. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. We've been joined by my brother David Totten, who edited our interview today at Totten Audio in Seattle. The soundtrack to our show should be hitting iTunes on September 15th. We'll post a little announcement when it does. 
But for now, find us on social media. Email us your feedback. Post a review on iTunes if you don't mind. Before we go, I promised you in the introduction that Liana and I talked about ethical porn. Well, here's her recommendation. One pornographer that I um, have been in love with for 100 years, I don't know how long she's been making porn, is Shine Lewis Houston of Pink and White Productions in the Bay Area. And Shane Lewis is um, African-American and queer and fat. And she talks about, um, her quote is, make the porn you wish to see in the world. Mm. And she talks a lot about how radical it is just to make pornography um, starring people who look like her or people who don't look like her, right? Just people who are in their bodies in ways that we don't often see. She has this, side note, she has this amazing series on YouTube where um, the porn performers, uh, like, lounge on the bed in towels all sweaty after the scene is done and, t- and ask each other, like, how was that for you? Like, and, like, check in. And it's, like, the best thing I've ever seen because all I ever want to know about my porn is that my porn performers, like excellently communicated their boundaries to each other before session and were like very respected and then like checked in after and like had this um kindness right this like kindness to self and others in their experience and like made great porn